On this episode of the Flow State Performance Podcast, I speak to Dr. Christopher Lundstrom about his research in sports science relevant to marathon training. Dr. Lundstrom received his PhD in kinesiology from the University of Minnesota. His thesis assessed plyometric training, running economy, and marathon running. Chris is also the director of the Human Sports Performance Lab at the University of Minnesota, as well as a lecturer in the School of Kinesiology. Chris is not only a researcher, but accomplished runner and coach. Chris ran collegiately at the University of Stanford, as well as placing third and fourth in the USA Marathon Championships and representing the United States in the Pan American Games and the World Mountain Running Championships. Chris is the head coach of Minnesota Distance Elite, formerly Team USA Minnesota. Today, we talked about Chris's experience as a runner, coach, and researcher, diving into his work and giving practical takeaways for runners of all levels. Enjoy. So with that, I welcome you to the Flow State Performance Podcast, episode one with Dr. Christopher Lundstrom. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. I'm excited to be guest number one, getting in on the ground floor. <laughs> there you go. Inaugural episode. Well, so happy to have you. Thanks so much for taking uh, the time today. So um, this, this episode is going to be basically all things marathon and diving into a lot of Dr. Lundstrom's research uh, relevant to marathon. So I think we'll start. Uh, Chris is an accomplished runner himself, uh, so maybe we'll just start with how you got your start in running and how, how you found your passion for running. Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I grew up a very active kid doing all sorts of sports, uh, you know, in a you know small town, southern Minnesota, Northfield. Um, and I mean, I had some early exposure to running just with summer track and, and things like that. Uh, but really where it started to click was uh, going out for cross country in eighth grade, which typical story. I went out to get in, get in shape for basketball. Uh, and then I quickly learned, uh, I am, uh, much more suited to this activity, uh, as much as I tried and, and, uh, uh, worked on my vertical jump and all that. Um, I was probably not going to make it to the NBA, whereas I, I actually had a real propensity to distance running. And beyond that, uh, I remember just really, uh, enjoying it and loving the, the freedom. You know, when you're a kid, you're kind of stuck at home or you just kind of um, don't feel like you have a lot of freedom, but the feeling of going out into the woods on a trail or, you know, dirt roads uh, and just being able to go, uh, uh, that appealed to me right away. So I uh, ended up running all through high school and, and uh, collegiately at Stanford, where I was not a very accomplished runner on a very accomplished team. <laughs> uh, we had two, two years where we were the NCAA champions in cross country, uh, and I was the alternate on one of those teams, but I did not crack the top seven. Um, so after that, uh, you know, I kind of thought I was done for a, a few months, and then I was getting back out there running more and more uh, again. And uh, ended up jumping in some cross country races and joined up with a local club in, in San Francisco. Uh, and then next thing I knew I was training for a half marathon and then soon after that a, a marathon and you know, found I was really well suited to those longer distances too. So um, ended up being a quote unquote professional runner, uh, meaning I pursued it uh, as a professional and was paid as a, you know, uh, probably a, an amateur, <laughs> um, but uh, did that for many years um, and, you know, had some great opportunities to race all around uh, the country and, and even internationally, uh, ran in the Pan Am Games um, for the U.S. 
And then, you know, actually got into some ultra running and, and stuff beyond that as I was getting a little bit older. So I've done a little bit of all of it, track, cross country, roads, uh, mountain running, ultras. Uh, so, I, and I, now I'm a, a bona fide uh, recreational runner who gets out and uh, shuffles around uh, every morning. So enjoying it still. Nice. Well, yeah, that's great to hear. And I guess also uh, you're an accomplished coach, uh, now coaching Minnesota distance elite, which was formerly team USA, Minnesota. Yes, that's correct. Yep. Yeah. So how, how, how is that? I guess, uh, an interesting question would be, did, did the research come first, uh, or did more your coaching come first after kind of your career as a, as a runner? Yeah, I would say the coaching really grew out of my running. I, I was, uh, um, very difficult athlete to coach myself, I think, because I always, felt like I knew what was best for me. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and I was always questioning, you know, why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? I was always very curious about that and reading everything I could find about training. Uh, and so, you know, some coaches don't mind. I, I am that way. I, I'm happy to talk about training and, and tell you exactly why we're doing the things we're doing. Some coaches don't want to answer those questions. They want you to just put your head down and do it. Uh, and I, I didn't get along very well with uh, that type of an approach. <laughs> um, but what happened was, as I was still running, some of my teammates and stuff, you know, maybe they would be coming back from injury or something like that. And, and um, just through talking, you know, they would say, hey, you know, what do you think I should be doing? And, and I would slowly, you know, give them a little guidance. And next thing you knew, I had a few athletes um, who I was coaching, uh, and that kind of grew and, and um, uh, exploded from there. I also, um, you know, just out of college, had actually uh, done some high school coaching in uh, in San Francisco. Uh, little fun fact uh, is that my first coaching job was at Sacred Heart Cathedral High School in San Francisco, and there was a freshman on the team. Um, on the track team there by the name of Shannon Robery, who you may be familiar with. She's uh, medaled at the Worlds uh, uh, in the 1500, to which I take no credit, but, uh, but that was uh, coincidentally my first coaching job. So I was an assistant coach there for a couple of years and then had a couple other assistant um, things as I was pursuing running myself. Um, and then um, uh, coached collegiately as well at San Francisco State for a year uh, before moving back to Minnesota. Uh, and then I, I was high school coaching for many years, kind of as I was going through graduate school and making the transition from being a, you know, a professional runner to figuring out what was next, which ended up being uh, this academic path that I've gone down. Yeah. Uh, so I guess what what kind of spurred spurred you to get a PhD in kinesiology from UMN? What kind of set you? Was there any like distinct moment in your athletic career where you were like, okay, I really want to find whatever combines like being in this space long term? Yeah, um, it was really a gradual process. Uh, when we moved back to Minnesota, I uh, went to the University of Minnesota to get an MED. Uh, in kinesiology, which my undergraduate was in humanities. So I had no background in sports science at all. Uh, and I knew at that point that I wanted to pursue coaching. And I just felt like I, I need to educate myself. And, um, and uh, you know, so that was a couple of years pursuing a master's. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a, there's a saying, um, 
you know, you get your undergraduate degree and you think you know a little something. Uh, then you get your master's degree and you realize you don't know anything. <laughs> and so I was at that point where I was like, oh man, this is like, uh, there's a lot more to, to uncover here. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I, I also started teaching a little bit at that time. Uh, and then it was a couple, two, three years later where I started the, the PhD program, but it was a combination of really realizing that the teaching component was, was a, lot of, um, uh, a lot of fun for me, which I hadn't really anticipated. I, I was really a kind of a quiet, shy kid. So uh, the thought of being in front of a classroom uh, did not appeal to me early in life, but uh, you know, I actually found a lot of fulfillment through that. Uh, and then, yeah, the questions and, and you know, as a master's student, I had kind of encountered some of the PhD students and gr other grad students. And it was just a really fun environment at that time with people asking different questions and, uh, you know, being able to go and collect data and, you know, try to figure some stuff out. So diving into the research and teaching, so kind of a combination that I found really interesting is the marathon course that you teach because it, it, it was the type of class. It's like I, I heard from friends that they were doing it. And I was like, oh, I didn't even realize like that was a course that could ever be offered. Like that's that's phenomenal. Uh, and, and furthermore, in looking through uh, a lot of your work, it, I found it I found it so awesome that you pulled from that group of students to, to conduct some research. Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, so when I was doing my master's, um, one of the faculty uh, in the department, Dr. Stacy Ingram, um, she had come from Northern Iowa where they had a course like this. Uh, and so she proposed it uh, and she said, and you're gonna teach it. <laughs> so uh, uh, I thought it was a great idea. And uh, the first year, you know, we ended up having 30, 35 people and it really grew from there. Um, so uh, we've had probably up near near a thousand students now come through the course most of them running their first uh their first marathon uh and yeah like you said on top of that um we thought it would be uh just uh really interesting and a benefit to the department and other students to do some testing and look at what actually happens uh when you train for a marathon looking at some of the physiological markers uh so uh, there's an educational component to that too, so the students can see, you know what, here's my VO2 max, here's my body composition, um, we've done some other measures, things like vertical jump, for example, or there have been years where we've done the Wingate test to look at anaerobic capacity, and to look and see how do I change uh, with marathon training. Mm -hmm. um, and you can also, you know, guide people a little bit if you see like, oh, you've got a really you know, a really high RER, for example, uh, at a relatively low intensity, that means you're relying on carbohydrate, uh, even to run pretty slow. So for a marathon, that means, boy, you're, you're at risk of running out of fuel pretty early. Um, so it's uh, used for uh, educational purposes primarily, but we've also used that data uh, in a number of studies as well. Mm -hmm. well yeah, I, I think I think that's just fascinating, because I think just from my experience in the endurance community, it's it's not terribly often that you get a ton of overlap. You you can find a lot of endurance athletes who are not considering like the types of things that you're thinking about, and especially people who really want to excel. It's like these are these start to be the types of considerations that you need to need to factor in because once you've already hit like let's say you've hit like 95% of the athletic gains that you can make just kind of following structured training, it's like okay, 
recovery, different cross training, exercise, mm-hmm. biometric score, these, they start to factor in way more. Yeah, yeah, and and I think the thing that's unique about the the course, you know, we we have this pretty big sample size, which is if you look at a lot of the sports science literature, that's that's one of the big issues you run into is just that, oh, we had a study of you know eight to ten participants, so if you want to kind of tease out like, well, you know, men versus women age differences, there's so many other differences that you, you, you know, you run into a lot of difficulty. So having that large group and having, you know, multiple years too. Um, and also it's, you know, it's not just a lab experiment, you know, it's, it's really a cohort study where um, they're following this program. And of course, life is happening. Uh, and scientists sometimes don't like that. They like to control everything. Uh, but when we try to apply sports science to real world situations, that's what it is. You know, there, there is all that confounding stuff going on. Yeah, I think that's a phenomenal point, because that's something that I really was thinking about as someone who comes from more benchtop work that is very controlled and very precise, where we're looking at controlling like a single intervention with without any confounding variables. And then looking at kind of the sports science lens through what you're doing, it's like, okay, we have people that are running marathons who are all starting from different baselines, who all have different body mass, who all have different height, different mm-hmm. biomechanics. And I'm like, wow. So just like me trying to think about how you would control that. I'm like, oh my goodness. But then, but it's exactly what you're saying. It's like, in reality, you're testing interventions that a real person will go use. It's not, mm-hmm. we don't need to perfectly control it because we want to see what the real world application is. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of getting back to where, you know, where I um, got the motivation to go and pursue a PhD was really from this idea that, you know, I thought uh, naively that I could probably like figure out an an equation that was going to perfectly predict somebody's marathon performance. Um, And, uh, you know, the more and more you learn, I mean, there's this whole other side despite, you know, we could gather every single physiological marker and blood and, you know, biomechanics. uh, But there's this whole area of psychology and motivation uh, that plays an important and a huge role in endurance sport and and running. So, um, so yeah, uh, I didn't come up with the magic equation, but, uh, but I did learn a lot along the way. You you never know. It's not over yet. I'll still be waiting for that equation if you get around to it. You know, we're still working on it. I just had a couple of grad students who, through the COVID period, they um, they decided to take a bunch of the marathon course data and uh, applied a machine learning approach to it to to see if we could improve our uh, ability to predict marathon performance. And uh, we failed. So, <laughs> uh, but again, it was really a limited number of these um, primarily ventilatory measures. Uh, yeah. So you're kind of narrowing your scope of, of what you're looking at. You've got to also take into account, you know, there's people taking this course who uh, they have five friends in the class and they're all going to run as a group together. And that, that's going to have more influence on their, mm-hmm. uh, their finish time than any, any. Yeah physiological parameter so certainly and i guess so kind of bridging to your thesis uh first of all it was phenomenal i i I loved it and i think for anyone who's interested in uh kind of getting into the sports sports science of endurance you do a phenomenal job 
with respect to running of kind of capturing uh, the prior literature. So I'll make sure I'll link all the original research uh, below uh, when this goes up in the show notes. Uh, but I, I thought it was a wealth of information, just a comprehensive review. Uh, so thinking about kind of if we're talking about marathon time predictors, you do a, a, a coverage of what has been used uh, historically as a predictor of like fitness and marathon time finish. What do you see, I guess, so I guess two questions on this front. What do you see now as being the gold standard uh, for a, a predictor for endurance sport? And then also, do you find that, because we're starting to talk about the mentality of endurance, do you find that as the distance gets longer, that mental component becomes greater and greater as and instead of more of a VO2 max measure or a lactate threshold measure? Yeah, uh, to take the last part first, yeah, absolutely. The longer you go, I think, you know, uh, you're obviously going to be at a lower percentage of your max. So where that max falls doesn't really matter that much. I mean, it does matter, but uh, it has less influence than it would in a 5k where you're going to be at 98, 99% of your VO2 max. Um, uh, so it, that's a huge limiting factor. Um, I think, you know, in terms of if you, if you just wanted to look at distance running performance as a whole, I think and you could only pick one measure. I think velocity at lactate threshold um, would probably be the one that I would um, that I would use um, because it's it's an integrated sort of measure. It takes into account um, obviously your VO2 max. The higher that is, even if you know two people are at ninety percent of their VO2 max um, when they hit that uh, speed at lactate threshold, the person with the higher VO2 max is going to be faster. Um, and, but it also takes into account your running economy or your, your efficiency. If you're moving more economically, you're going to get to that point, uh, at a little higher percent of your VO2 max. So, uh, and I think that that's not, um, that's not my idea. Uh, I think that's probably, uh, Mike Joyner from Mayo and others have talked about that. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, even that though, when you start to look at longer and longer races, you have to look at, you know, the underlying uh, uh, factors that can eventually break down over those distances. I mean, if you're talking about a, a mountainous, you know, hundred mile race, you know, how are your muscles able to absorb all of that impact from going up and down, uh, down those hills? Um, and then of course, the, your ability to tolerate nutrition uh, that's a huge thing, as you know, and uh, being an Ironman athlete, uh, if you if your stomach goes, you know, yeah. too bad, you know, <laughs> uh, you're, you're not going to be able to uh, reach really anywhere near your potential if you can't keep that fuel coming in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think that's phenomenal. And it it's kind of so through the lens of like marathon, I would be interested and in, I kind of was picking up on it in some of the research uh, with respect to commentary on VO2 max and it not being predictive for while it was predictive for recreational athletes as a like a race time predictor it wasn't predicted for elite athletes and I was wondering if like so if we're looking at a group of elite athletes I I, I would speculate like the variability in like body mass and general body composition is fairly regular and consistent with a lot of mm -hmm. pros at least in my mind uh so does do considerations are, are we hitting a point then with professionals where considerations for like vo2 or velocity at lactate threshold is does it really become more mental with them or is it still fairly predict, predictive 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, uh, it, obviously if you go to the Olympic final of the 5,000 meters across the board, every athlete is going to have a very high VO2 max. Um, and they're, you know, compared to a general population, they're also going to be extremely economical and all of these other characteristics are going to have a, a, a very high speed at lactate threshold. Um, but there's also, uh, I think there's a little more focus in recent years in endurance sport uh, on the muscular side. So because so many of these championship type races come down to that sprint finish or, you know, the ability to draw on your uh, anaerobic reserves at the end of a race. Um, so being able to produce that, you know, 52 second, 400 uh, at the end of a 5,000 meter race, um, that's not all mental. I mean, obviously there's a mental component, but if you go to the Olympic final again, like the stakes are high, everybody wants to be able to do that. There is some physiological uh, limiting factor uh, at play. Um, so, and obviously, I mean, you and I probably can't go out and run a 52 second 400 just with fully rested. So, uh, so I think, you know, we, we probably know a little bit less on the muscular side. And um, uh, I think we can probably, as, as endurance athletes, we probably can learn a lot from uh, looking at sprint and power type of events. Obviously, we want to maintain our, you know, lean body composition, not carrying any uh, um, uh, excess muscle mass that's not contributing to running faster. Um, but if we can add a, a little bit of muscle mass, that's going to give us that ability to, to really finish strong. Um, that can be a differentiating factor for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the, the last point that you're hitting on with kind of what, what does body composition look like and kind of those elite performers is phenomenal. And it reminds me of kind of the allometric scaling analysis that you did with respect to body mass. And I was starting to think about it as, okay, we have that component, like a VO2 max component where we should scale it allometrically uh, via that body mass. It's like, but then we're, we, do we also need to consider like lean mass versus body mass? So like what amount of that mass is contributing to force generation? And then we have another intersection where, okay, if they have more lean body mass, yes, that's giving force generation, but it's also driving up the energy expenditure and that energy cost. Mm -hmm. So I guess... In, uh, even even in your coaching athletes, how do you start to think about what what is the role of like strength training or like maybe trying to add, like have you had athletes where you're like, okay, I, I think you've hit the max gains that you can get with your current strength on in your legs. So we need to take like a season or like a bit of the season where we're focusing more on strength versus running. Um, yeah, I, I, with, with most of the athletes I coach, I mean, I think endurance athletes in general, have this fear of, uh, if I do anything strengthening, anything power, I'm going to add all this muscle mass. And, um, for athletes that are at a pretty high level of endurance sport, um, they're probably very highly type one muscle fiber. So they're not going, they're not just, they're just not predisposed to add a lot of muscle mass, the general population that might be a little bit different where, you know, you're probably more middle of the road split between type two, which are the, you know, the fast twitch muscle fibers, which do tend to hypertrophy or grow a little bit more, uh, with strength training, but most endurance athletes, you know, they can lift, uh, quite a lot and, and maybe they'll 
add three or four pounds, but they're going to get a lot more out of that in their ability to perform. Um, so uh, I think um, as a general rule, uh, a little bit goes a long way with, with strength and plyometric activities. Um, again, if you're an athlete, an endurance athlete, such as yourself, who's training for an Ironman, you're doing so many hours of endurance activity. Uh, so the idea that doing 30 minutes a couple days a week uh, in the weight room is going to really change your, your uh, body composition um, is probably, uh, probably misguided. So um, I think uh, there have been sometimes, there's one athlete I'm coaching now, for example, uh, who had a big strength imbalance from one leg to the other. Uh, so we've gone for several weeks of just very low volume aerobic training while that uh, opposite side leg gets strengthened up so that she can be balanced before she tries to, you know, go out and do a uh, high volume of uh, running, where she's obviously then going to be developing these kind of, you know, uneven uh, biomechanics and, and characteristics. So yeah, I, but I, I do, I think I generally recommend pretty low volume, uh, but fairly high intensity. That's the other thing that kind of drives me crazy with endurance athletes is uh, they go in the weight room and they, they're like, first of all, they're used to spending a lot of time. So they go in for 90 minutes and they've got like five pound hand weights and they're doing a running motion or something. Well, you don't need to develop uh, muscular endurance. You've already got that, you know, uh, you need to really uh, try to recruit those uh, muscle fibers uh, that you aren't recruiting during running. Uh, and I think that's important for injury prevention and also for, uh, for performance as well. Yeah. So I guess kind of, and this might be a segue into talking more about the, the ply one core studies. Do you see the utility because we're talking about relatively low volume with either plyo or strength. Do you see the utility coming predominantly from a neuromuscular adaptation, uh, to those stimuli or, are we thinking more actual like strength gains where it'd be like more hypertrophy or change in mitochondrial density, things of that nature? Yeah, the um, kind of the uh, traditional way of thinking about strength training is that the initial gains uh, from any type of a, a weightlifting or, or strength training come from a neuromuscular um, side, meaning you just get better at, you know, firing those muscle fibers. They don't, the muscle fibers themselves don't actually change a whole lot. We just get better at turning them on when we need them. Um, more recent research suggests both are kind of happening at the same time. Uh, so you are seeing some changes at the muscle fiber level. So there, you know, again, there might be a little bit of hypertrophy. There might be a little bit of, you know, additional muscle protein uh, being added. Um, as well as you're getting better at, at firing those, those muscles. Um, so I, I think it is a combination that, that's happening. Mm -hmm. So I guess segueing from there to, into the research uh, relevant to, to Ply One Core, let's dive into the, the 2017 paper. It's titled Effects of Plyometric and Explosive Speed Training on Recreational Marathoners. So this was the marathon class group that you recruited from. Yeah, yeah. So this was my coming from my dissertation. So uh, I recruited a, uh, initially about 30 uh, participants who were willing to do an additional uh, 30 minute session 
per week. So the way the class is set up, Monday we have a lecture in the classroom. Wednesday they do a workout, um, uh, you know, a hill repeats or a fartlek or a threshold run. Uh, and then after class, uh, they would be willing to do this 30 minute um, session each week. Uh, and then Sunday's their long run. So that's kind of the structure of the training. Uh, and then uh, it ended up being about, you could probably, you have it in front of you, 24 or 26 uh, participants in the end who were randomized to either a core training intervention or a plyometric and uh, explosive speed training. So the the core training was set up as, um, that was essentially uh, my control group. You could think of it that way, where this is something where, you know, runners typically do this. It's pretty common, even just the general population, you know, I got to do some core. So they're doing, you know, sit-ups, planks, that kind of thing. Uh, and then the plyometric and explosive speed group was doing, uh, you know, some squat jumps, bounding, maximal, very short sprints. Um, and uh, essentially, again, just once a week. Um, and uh, we tested them before and after in a, a number of measures. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so um, the, I guess I can get into the, the findings were that really that uh, um, in the, uh, very interestingly in the, the measures of jump, jumping ability, uh, and there were a few of them, uh, the core group actually got worse <laughs> from marathon training, which uh, if you've trained for a marathon or a, or a long event, you kind of know like as you're getting deeper into the training, you just don't have as much pop in your legs. Uh, and so the idea of going and doing a vertical jump, uh, probably not something that's very appealing and, and not something you're going to be very good at. Um, so they got worse, whereas the, the plyo group actually maintained their jumping ability. Uh, and the, the plyo group also got faster in, uh, in sprinting ability. So pr particularly their uh, 200 meter sprint, which was the longest, uh, longest sprint that we had them do, um, that improved um, from pre to post training. Whereas the, uh, the core group uh, really... Uh, they didn't get any better, which makes sense. I mean, they weren't doing a lot of high intensity training. They weren't doing any jumping. Um, and so uh, the, the corollary to that though, was of course, the question that everybody wants to know is, did it help with their marathon? Did it help with their running performance? And we really didn't see uh, a significant effect on their, uh, on their running performance. Um, so kind of the takeaway from my side was that, uh, you know, this intervention might help kind of maintain your muscular function, but for this population, mostly training for their first marathon, um, uh, there wasn't a real performance benefit to doing the, uh, plyometric training. There was, uh, a side uh, question, however, of this uh, phenomenon we saw where our slower runners in that core group or, or in the plyo group seem to not respond very well at all to the uh, plyo training, whereas our faster runners in the plyo group seem to uh, improve in their running performance more. So um, uh, the question would be, if you, if you took a little bit more experienced population um, might this translate a little bit better? Uh, whereas a less experienced group who's 
you know, they're doing these 20 mile long runs. The training load is already really heavy. Perhaps adding plyos to that was just too much for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, so probing deeper uh, to that kind of more elite level of runners, did you, you did that follow-up testing uh, there in the, or it's still to be done? No, I have not. There, there are a number of studies out there. Uh, nothing yet that I'm aware of with marathon runners, uh, but there's a number of, uh, number of studies on, um, uh, endurance athletes and, uh, distance runners and the, the results are kind of mixed, but on the whole, I would say there is pretty good evidence suggesting a benefit to plyometric training, uh, for up to probably 5k for sure, maybe 10k. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's good to know. So in, in your coaching, that's where you would see the most gain. Uh, would be for those shorter distance athletes. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that I would say the most gain. I I, I do think it's still beneficial for the longer distances. Again, just in preserving um, neuromuscular function. Um, maybe not as much on the performance side, but especially if you have uh, somebody who's really a, a marathoner, they're going to be doing a couple per year. Uh, I think over time, doing that explosive stuff is important to preserving their, um, their muscular function. Mm, certainly, certainly. So I guess segueing to kind of a different avenue of research with the more recent paper, uh, foam rolling, it's kind of, you know, it, it, the introduction of the paper talks a lot about how foam rolling is traditionally just anecdotal, where a lot of people, a lot of athletes will just do it. And you'll see a lot of people carrying their foam rollers around. And then what I it wasn't aware of until I read this paper was that we actually have not tested it significantly. Uh, so if you would want to dive into that a little bit. Um, yeah, sure. So I should <laughs> preface this by saying this is a uh, research done uh, primarily by Emily, who was a, a PhD student, um, a little bit younger than me. I was on her committee. Uh, on her dissertation committee. So I'm one of the authors on this paper. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, she uh, basically took runners and um, had them come in. Well, it was quite a well-designed and uh, elaborate study, actually. They did a 3K time trial, then a downhill run on the treadmill to induce muscle damage. Um, <clears throat> and then they did foam rolling protocol or uh, basically work what she uh, termed compression tights, but were actually just regular tights. Uh, so it was, again, that kind of that um, control condition. Uh, and then came back later to um, repeat performance measures. Uh, the, the 3K time trial uh, looked at blood markers, um, perception of soreness, et cetera. Um, and uh, yeah, so the, the foam rolling was very carefully controlled with, you know, the amount of seconds on each segment of the leg and, and so on. Uh, so anybody could go and replicate it. Um, but uh, what she found was there really weren't big changes on the, uh, uh, on the blood markers. So there was still the same inflammation, et cetera. Uh, but the perception of soreness was less in that foam rolling group. So... <clears throat> Uh, depending on your perspective, that's uh, either, well, who cares? The inflammation is the same. So, but if you're an endurance athlete, you know, if I'm more sore 
I'm going to run slower. I'm going to have a longer recovery time. If I feel better, I'm able to, you know, do a little bit more, um, a little bit sooner, which over time could potentially lead to, you know, better training, uh, certainly a better experience of, uh, running. I mean, if you're super sore, uh, it's just not going to be that much fun. So, uh, so yeah, that was, um, kind of the, the main, uh, gist of that study. Yeah. And I think another interesting piece to come out of, uh, that work, uh, just in talking about background for recovery in general, and I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about kind of what you prescribe to your athletes. Uh, is that we know that some of the recovery strategies that are gaining popularity, likely because of the novelty of how they look, are actually like contraindicated for, for at least training performance. So mm -hmm. I'm thinking of things like, I don't know, kind of there, there's been like cryotherapy, cold immersion. And it's like, those are some of the types of things that we know kind of blunt the hormetic response to training. Yeah. While they might be good if you're doing like a two-day competition to do it after night one to kind of prepare yourself for a second day that we also see that you know we lose we're losing some of the gains being made in response to the stimuli yeah yeah and you're right on point there i mean it started with research i think on anti-inflammatories where you know back in when i was in college in the 90s you know there was there were people on the team who were just it was just steady advil all season long you know <laughs> um and similarly, after every practice, jump in the ice bath. Um, and both of these, it turns out, um, uh, they do reduce inflammation, but they reduce the cell signaling that helps uh, actually uh, create the adaptations that, that we're looking for. So uh, the, all the signaling that's you know saying, we need to produce more mitochondria, all, all of those things that are beneficial towards uh, adaptation to exercise, uh, can be blunted by these quote unquote recovery strategies. Mm -hmm. um, so the way I approach it is uh, exactly what you said there is just, um, you know, chronically during training, uh, we don't, uh, I don't recommend um, icing or ibuprofen, those sorts of things. Um, but perhaps in a period of uh, where you have competitions closely uh, timed together, uh, or um, occasionally, you know, if, if it's a situation where uh, I feel like there are some workouts or events where there's really no, uh, no risk that you're not going to get that cell signaling. The workout or the race has been so extreme that it doesn't matter what you do. You're going to be really sore. You're going to have all this going on. Uh, so, for example, if you finish, you know, an Ironman and, and you're like, well, I've got another one in two months or whatever. I want to make sure I'm getting the adaptation. You're going to get the adaptation in that, in that case, I think. I haven't tested that, but just from the way your body feels afterwards, uh, you know you know pretty well that, uh, that your body's getting the message that some damage has been done and we need to adapt. We need to uh, improve. So it's kind of a balance. You know, you, I think um, knowing that, um, that there is that potential negative for using these strategies chronically is important to understand and, and something that a lot of uh, coaches and endurance athletes do not know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, if you ever need those Ironman athletes, I can definitely connect <laughs> you to a lot. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I guess kind of rounding out the research, uh, let's just go through like practical takeaways for 
whether you're recreational or pro, what do you see as a practical takeaway from the work that you've done, even things that maybe we haven't covered uh, with respect to training and recovery? Um, yeah, that's a good, uh, that's a good kind of general question. I think um, I'll, I'll just kind of go beyond the scope of, uh, of what I've, you know, necessarily published. Uh, but I, I think the main takeaway I would say is, is uh, just to be a very careful observer of, um, of your response, whether it's yourself or athletes that you're coaching, um, and to kind of set aside the preconceived notions of what you think is supposed to happen. Um, and, you know, I, I always encourage taking very careful notes, keeping close records of, of what's what's gone on, what's happened. Um, and, uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of times we get caught up in the moment of, you know, I feel bad today or I feel great today. It must be what I did yesterday or two days ago. Uh, when in reality, I think you need to kind of zoom back and, and look at the, the big scale and where do things happen in, uh, in training and uh, in the scope of an individual's uh, athletic career. Something that worked for somebody else may not work for you. Something that worked for you uh, five years ago might not work anymore. You might not be um, stimulating any, any adaptation anymore by doing uh, the same thing, even though it would led to that great race you know, five years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be my main takeaway is just to, to kind of use a, a scientific approach to training in the sense of uh, observe, take notes uh, and try to, you know, set aside judgment and uh, conclusions. Uh, instead, just uh, pay attention to what's going on. Mm, great. Uh, I guess another broad question I would have as we're kind of, kind of asking you to look into the future of kind of sports science and how we train, you know, we have the advent of, of whoop. It seems like, you know, every athlete is either wearing a whoop or, seeing the advertising for whoop so i guess as as someone who's also uh an expert in in sports science how do you find the role of those kind of trackers whether it's with your athletes with yourself where where do they fit into the picture of training yeah i i don't use one personally but i, I think there's a great value but I, I think again the caveat is this is just a piece of data and it's uh i think it's kind of built for a general population. Um, so keep that in mind. And again, pay more attention to um, how do you compare to how you used to be or, or how you are on average, rather than how you compare to the general population. Um, as a you know guy who likes to look at the raw data, a, a lot of these um, technologies frustrate me a little bit in that they take a bunch of things and then they spit out a single score or uh, recovery status. Um, uh, I, I like to um, have my athletes measure their morning heart rates as well as their heart rate variability first thing in the morning. So that you can do with an app also. Um, and I've done some work on uh, HRV, uh, which I think is a, uh, along with resting heart rate, a, a pretty good measure of recovery status. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think I'm all for uh, all these things and, and just taking them uh, as one more piece of data uh, mm -hmm. 
in addition to the number one thing, which is always going to be, you know, how do you feel today? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, you go out, your heart rate variability score is low, your resting heart rate's a little elevated, but you're walking around before your workout and you're like, I feel fine. I'm good to go. And then you start the workout and you're like, oh no, I'm not. <laughs> uh, so that's a, a sign that, yep, better, you know, shut it down today and come back another day. Um, but if you're feeling great, um, uh, then proceed and, but, but make note of it. And if it turns out, you know what, then you feel terrible for three days afterwards, maybe it was a good idea to, uh, to push the workout back for a day or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think all the technology is great. It's just a matter of what do we actually do with the data uh, and not become a, you know, a slave to the data too. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's certainly important. I, I know for myself and also athletes that I interact with, uh, even those that I don't coach, I think, especially with whoop, it's like, you see a very gamified, you know, statistic where it's like, Oh, you're in the green for recovery today, better push it. And you're like, I really don't feel great today though. So it's, yeah. what's, what's the deal here? Uh, or, or the opposite. It's like, you're in the red and they're like, oh, really should get back in bed, get some more sleep. And you're like, I feel phenomenal. I'm going to go for a run. Uh, yeah. So yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I have the same, I have a just HRV for training app, which mm-hmm. basically it does give you a lot of information and you can get the raw scores. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end, it tells you essentially one of three choices, you know, either you're good to go, proceed as planned. Uh, you might want to think about taking it easy today or whatever the other one is. Uh, so I kind of push that aside a little bit, but I do certainly pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think certainly the piece of really gathering the holistic picture with every workout is probably something that not enough athletes do that would certainly be something to drive performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so and it's the same with, you know, runners are sort of obsessed with their Strava statistics and yeah. uh, it's, uh, it's really, it can be a, a, a positive thing in terms of like, Hey, you know, it helps motivation for the general public, but you get these like high end endurance athletes who are already a little too type a, uh, and they want to win every segment and they want their average pace to look good on a, on, on a, easy run. Uh, yeah. And it can become a, a negative thing. Some people it's better to just, you know, shut that off. And, uh, whereas other people, um, it can be beneficial. Yeah. So take away, don't get lost in the data. <laughs> be, be holistic. Yes, uh, absolutely. So I get to close it out. I'm just going to run through some lightning questions, probably some more fun, more fun type of questions. All right. Like, I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> Go to your go-to pre-race meal. I would say pancakes. Okay, nice. Mm-hmm. Favorite recovery or training tool for under a hundred dollars? Uh sleep. Good deal. That's free. There you go. <laughs> uh, best piece of training advice that you ever received as an athlete. Um go how you feel. <laughs> That's a good one. I like that too. Um, bread and butter marathon workout. So if you're, if you're training up, what's your bread and butter, like thing that you're doing weekly or maybe once a month, go to workout, go to workout. I would say a progressive long run. Nice. Just cutting down, getting the marathon pace, uh, w- when you feel able to and holding it for a good stretch. 
favorite book you've read recently could be related to anything Ooh, favorite book i read recently um let's see i have i read so many things at the same time um trying to think of a good one um well um I'm forgetting the name of the author, but it's a book called Thicker Than Blood, which is a, a history of the use of uh, race in social statistics, uh, which is pretty fascinating. Uh, and uh, definitely, um, uh, uh, I think, useful for, for social scientists. And, and even, you know, sometimes uh, in the sciences, uh, people are being classified by race without a lot of thought as to what that means and how we're defining these categories. So interesting. Favorite pair of running shoes. Oh, what brand that you go to. I would say the Brooks Ghost is uh, oh, pretty much always, nice. always close at hand. <laughs> Very nice. Um, okay, and then I guess we'll close with final wisdom to someone. Let's say someone who wants to train for a marathon, and then uh, where can people find you at? if they want to connect with you? Sure. Um, piece of wisdom, uh, I would say uh, keep the long term in view. So be, you know, gradual in your increases, um, not only for uh, your first marathon, uh, but, you know, have the sense for, you know, even if you have four months or five months, um, that uh, this is a relatively small amount of time and, uh, you know, stay healthy, be smart, increase gradually, and you can build over years and years and years uh, uh, moving ahead. Uh, and then, yeah, where people can find me is uh, I'm on uh, the U of M website. You can search the School of Kinesiology and find me there, my email, uh, as well as uh, I'm on Twitter uh, at Coach underscore Lundo. I think it's the same for Instagram. Um, I am uh, occasionally active on social media. <laughs> I'm like, you know, mid 40s active on social media. <laughs> All right, Dr. Lundstrom, thanks so much. All right, thank you. This was great.